0: Thank you for listening to this week's Freedom Church podcast. We hope it helps and inspires you. Uh, I used to do a lot of youth work, I was saying to the guys this morning, and uh, the thing I used to enjoy the most is the school assembly. Because kids had to listen to you for five minutes. They had no choice. And uh, But I don't know if you remember your school assembly as being the most riveting, exciting, dynamic moment of your school career. Just put your hand up if that was your experience. Um, there are no school teachers here, right? Um, someone normally goes, yes. <laughs> and uh, I knew this story. And basically, uh, kids come in. Uh, and uh, and at, on the stage, there's this table, and in the table is a bunch of apples and uh, and delicious-looking apples, and there's a sign above the apples that says, Take one apple only. God is watching. And so the kids come in, and they look a little nervous, take an apple, have a good look around, just in case, and then go back to their seat. And as the kids um, leave the assembly hall, at the back of the hall, there's another table, and on the table is this basket of delicious chocolate brownie. And as the kids walk past, there's another sign. And the sign says, Take as much brownie as you want. God's watching the apples. And you know, so often we've communicated just a God that's mean, haven't we? A God that wants to stop all your fun and uh, a load of rules that you need to live up to. And if you don't live up to those rules, then you're in trouble. And uh, yeah, that's not really my experience of God. And uh, so today we really want to underpack this whole issue around emotional and mental well-being because sometimes, I don't know about you, um, life can feel a little bit overwhelming. Who remembers the game Tetris? Anyone remember the game Tetris? Tetris is when these blocks fall out of the sky and you're meant to rotate them to get them all in a straight line. And when you get in a straight line, the line disappears. But the problem is the blocks come faster and faster and faster. I don't know what it is about life. Life can go faster and faster and faster. Things all go wrong at the same time. Does that happen to anyone else? Um, And then eventually you're like, can't do it anymore. Emotionally, I'm just game over. I just can't do this anymore. Can anyone here relate to this next slide? Put your hand up if you can relate to that next slide. Please, God, let it not just be me. It's like you've got a plan. And yet, you know, our kids get sick. Things do happen. Marriages do break. It's really difficult, but it doesn't always work out. I want to share a little bit from the story of Elijah. Elijah. I love the story of Elijah. I feel like it should be a Hollywood blockbuster, you know, because um, Elijah is such a fascinating character. He lives in a time that's ruled by Ahab and Jezebel, and uh, they worship the god Baal. And the god Baal was um, seen as being in charge of the weather. And uh, the way they used to worship this god is they used to sacrifice children, they used to whip themselves, they used to erect these temples to this god Baal. And uh, Elijah in 1 Kings 17 um, is told to confront. Ahab and Jezebel. He realizes that he is the answer to his own prayers. I don't think that's ever happened to you. God sends someone. I'm sending you. Oh dear. And and he said, "There'll be neither no rain nor dew until I say so." Until Elijah says so. And then after that, I expect he expected some major breakthrough. But God sent him to a place called the Cherith Ravine. And uh, when I studied this story in Sunday school, I always imagined the Cherith Ravine. I coloured in Elijah, sunbathing by, the, um, by his beautiful stream, you know, eating Burger King uh, twice a day as the ravens dropped food onto his lap. The reality is it would have been a murky, dark place. He was eating raw meat and uh, it would have been 120 degrees and he was there for a year. You know, it would have been a lonely, desperate time. And though God provided, and God does that, doesn't He? He often provides in the midst of really dry seasons. He provides in amazing ways. So then the message comes to Elijah you need to go to Xenopath. Now, Xenopath is Jezebel's hometown, which means it's full of bar worshippers. And he hasn't had any human company for a year. He arrives in Xenopath and he's told to go and talk to this widow who's suicidal. You know, he must have thought, come on, God, give me a break. Surely, you know, feel like a fry-up, not like and, uh, uh, talking to a si- suicidal lady here. And he gets to know her and things happen. And then her son dies. And then apparently it's Elijah's fault the son dies. So Elijah does that thing we always hear at big Christian festivals. You know, everyone's got a laying on a dead person story, it feels. And uh, so he lays on a dead person and then they get up and, uh, and he survives. And then it comes to Carmel. And this, I guess he thought, this is the climax. All the prophets of God, all the prophets of Baal. Well, only one prophet of God in terms of Elijah. But what happens is, there's this test, there's this sacrifice. And he says, if you God, so if you God is real, set fire to the sacrifice. And the Baal worshippers, they whip themselves, they get themselves into a frenzy, they dance around. Elijah starts taking the mick out of them, saying, maybe, you, you know, your God's gone to the toilet, you need to shout a bit louder. And... Uh, And then nothing happens. And then God um, sets fire to the sacrifice. At that point, Elijah must have thought, this is my moment. This is it. It's all going to change. Book tour, conference, main stage. I'm going to be everywhere. It's going to be fantastic. But the reality is, is nothing changed. In fact, Jezebel put out a, uh, a death warrant on Elijah's life. And the reality is, sometimes we think life's going to work out a certain way, don't we? And the reality is, sometimes our prayers, for some reason, don't get answered. Redundancies get made. Test results come back with terrifying news. People do get cancer. Marriages do break down sometimes. And uh, and our life is a little bit like that first diagram. We think we've got it all sus. You know, you can't control life, can you? You know, I've got four children, and one of the things you learn as a parent, you can't control your kids, and uh, they have to make their own choices. Elijah, this is 1 Kings uh, 1, 19, verse 1 to 5. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, May the gods deal with me be ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went into a journey into the wilderness, he came to a boom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he may die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm, better than, I'm no better than all my ancestors. Elijah was in a desperate, painful, low place where his thoughts must have been going wild, thinking I'm a complete and utter failure. I've lost it. It hasn't worked out. And I know for me, I've often been in that place. You know, I have always often that Christian leader who, um, I'm an activist. I've traveled overseas a lot and uh, always doing stuff. And I was that classic person, work really, really hard and then burn out a bit. And then rest a little bit, but then I just rest another bit, uh, you know, just enough to then go out and burn out again. And it's a little bit like you put your phone on charge um, for 10 minutes because your phone will work as well on 10% as it does 100%. Think about it. It will do exactly the same thing all on 10% as it does 100%. It just won't last very long. And I think so often we get in a cycle of living our lives like that. And, and it goes on. It goes year upon year upon year. But for me, the showreel was looking pretty good. And, uh, you know, in XLP, the charity I used to run, we always had amazing, famous visitors, you know. Um, we had loads of prime ministers, normally the week before an election, funnily. And, uh, and we had a guy who came down six times. And I don't want to name drop, but he had blonde hair and he didn't comb it very often. <laughs> and please, God, no. But anyway, and... Um, and he came down and actually got to know him reasonably well which uh which might bite me in the bum soon and um and then um we had the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge they came twice in a year and they spent uh, most of the day with us and so because they came twice in a year I got to know them reasonably well and uh, and they came and you know this is them sitting next to my wife Diane actually and um Um, and uh, and then they came to our bus and then they came um, the last time uh, to our church and uh, this photo of me and Catherine is basically us outside the church and what you can't see is literally it's literally about um, probably more people than there are here about 100 people uh, with cameras going off all the time so it's like strobe lightning and I turned into her and literally in this conversation I'm saying how on earth do you do this? Um, this would just do my head in. And uh, I went home that night, and these photos, they literally went around the world. Um, we were in magazines like OK Magazine and Hello Magazine. And uh, getting the mo- you know, my wife was getting the most bizarre. You know, I saw your husband in Hello Magazine. And uh, the Facebook page looked great. Um, the website crashed. You know, we, you know, I did all BBC 6 o'clock news. And everyone was coming up to me the next day going, wow. Life's pretty good, right? The reality is, in that photograph, that man in that photograph is anxious, um, he's depressed, he's in the lowest place that he's been for many, many years. But the show showreel looks good. But I didn't want to say anything. Why didn't I want to say anything? Because I guess there was this stupid part of me that was well, not stupid, it was real. I just felt ashamed. I just felt like I've got a good life. I shouldn't feel these feelings that I'm feeling. I shouldn't be anxious you know, and I look back over my sort of Christian life and I was trying to think of all the sermons I heard about mental health. And I didn't really hear any, hardly. Um, but I was taught anxiety was not trusting God enough. And uh, so if you've got anxiety, then you just end up feeling guilty because you feel like I'm just not trusting God enough or I'm not grateful enough. Um, depression was a sin. And, uh, and I was often told that I didn't have enough faith And, you know, and because I was quite seriously ill with some operations, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. I was prayed for by every well-known Christian leader there is. You know, I'd turn up to these big festivals and they were like, um, the the event organisers always made me laugh. They'd come up to me and go, um, because I needed major surgery on my legs. And everyone was, you know, it's going to be hell to go through. It's going to be a two years recovery time sort of thing when I've done them both. And they were like, you know, it's all right. I've got you prayer around the back with the person from Bethel. I'm like, I don't want to go around the back with a person from Bethel. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, I'm like, I, I, I'm like, I'm tired of being prayed for. I was tired, you know. I, I used to have pastors blow in my face, and I'm thinking, if you blow in my face again, I'm going to smash your head in. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, seriously. I started feeling so sorry for people that were praying for me. I don't know if you ever done that. You've been prayed for so many times, and you feel like, in a minute, I'm just going to fall over and twitch just to keep them off my back. <laughs> because they are just really looking quite intense at this moment. And I just then felt, God, it must be me. I'm losing the plot here, and I've got some secret sin. I repented of every sin that I could imagine. I made some sins up, just to be sure. Um, and I thought, God, what is going on? And I guess I came to a point in my Christian life, is like, I'm just fed up. I'm fed up with the show. I'm fed up with pretending. Uh, I-, I can't stand the politics. And I'm just desperate for something more authentic more real and more honest and so I wrote this book honesty over silence and uh, I always decided that writing is a lot cheaper than therapy and uh, and I love it and so I found the time and uh, and there were times when I was writing it I was going I think I need to stop now because otherwise I will never be asked to speak ever anywhere ever again and but I realized that actually the psalms are like that 40% of the Psalms are laments, 40% of the Psalms are David, I just don't get it. And actually some of the most beautiful art and beautiful music has been written in times where you're really searching and you want to go deeper and you want to be more authentic. So I carried on and uh, and I didn't just want to write about my story, I wrote about some of my friend's stories and this is Rach. Um, Rach has a beautiful son, Um, he has a life-limiting condition and uh, she has to turn him every two hours and she has to give him 20 injections a day. He um, can't speak. He can't interact very well. And I was like, how does faith work out for you? And she's like, Patrick, you, you don't get it. I can't survive without faith. Without my faith, I can't do anything. I have to meet God in the midst of what I'm dealing with on a life to day-to-day basis. Um, this is my best mate, one of my best mates, um, John Sutherland. He was a Met um, borough commander, 1,500 police officers. I mean, he was tipped to go commissioner. Um, and uh, and I remember it was probably six or seven years ago then. Um, he was down A&E. And uh, when one of your mates, who's a very senior police officer, goes A&E, you feel the worse. Um, but he just literally had a crash. Anxiety just got hold of him. I had a breakdown. And I visited him sort of weeks after because... And I didn't want to try and fix him or give him a pep talk. I just wanted to be his friend. And, um, and he said to me, Patrick, the whole man up thing, man up, didn't work for me, did it? I just wish I hadn't believed that load of rubbish. Um, and then the hardest interview and the hardest chapter in the book is, you do need some tissues for it, is Alan and Jackie Slough, a um, beautiful couple. Um, their 16-year-old son completed a suicide and, and I said to them, why talk about this? Why write your story? Why come on telly and talk to me? And they were like, you know, six and a half thousand people complete suicides every year. Um, why are we not talking about it? Every single day on our railways, something's happening. And again, there's some really bad theology about it in churches. Like it's a selfish act and they're not going to be in heaven and all this sort of stuff. You know what? If someone's in that place, they believe that everyone else would be better off if they weren't there. That's a desperately painful, lonely place to be. And we will have people in this room that's been affected by this. And I've been in that place where I think, you know, Diane and the kids, I think they'd be better off without me. And you start to believe that stuff because you're so low and so down on yourself. And it's like Elijah's in that place. He wants God to take his life. Take my life, God. I can't do it anymore. Life hasn't worked out the way I thought it was going to. I can't work it out anymore. When I was um, studying for the book... Um, I I go a little bit, my perfectionism comes out when I'm writing books, it's awful I I read all the theology books and all the psychology books and when it got to that chapter on anxiety I was studying so hard but I just wasn't happy with what I was coming up with it was all a bit technical, you know and uh, so I read a load of blog posts by normal people um, like me and and like you And, and I came up with this list of anxiety which I thought, oh my goodness, that describes me And it says this, anxiety is your brain not being able to turn off. Anxiety is the unanswered text message that kills us inside, especially WhatsApp, right? Because you can tell it's been read. Anxiety is believing every negative scenario that you come up with. It's the inaccurate conclusions drawn as your mind takes off and you have no choice to follow its lead. It's apologizing for things that don't require you to say sorry. It's self-doubt and the lack of confidence. It's trying to fix something that isn't a problem. It's the fear of failure and striving for perfection. Then beating yourself up when you don't get there. It tells you you're wrong. They don't like you. You mind read all the time. You make up what other people are thinking of you the whole time. And normally it's not true. It's constantly asking the what if questions. But I couldn't find a definition I was happy with. And then I found this blog post and I found this definition. I thought, that is so beautiful. I love that. It says this, more than anything else, anxiety is caring. It's never wanting to hurt someone's feelings. It's never wanting to do something wrong. More than anything, it's the want and the need to simply be accepted and like so you try too hard sometimes. And so often what we've done in church, if you suffer from anxiety, we've just made you feel guilty for not trusting God enough. But I've worked out over the years that people that struggle from anxiety, you're normally sensitive. You have incredible empathy. You can work out when someone comes in a room often how they're feeling. And you're just a very lovely, sensitive person. And, uh, and making you feel guilty is not helpful. <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, so often you just care too much. It's a bit like a car alarm. I always say anxiety. If, you know, we need a car alarm, it's helpful. If it's going off all the time, it's a bit of a pain for everyone, um, including you. And uh, so it's sometimes it's helping people manage that. And, uh, but there's always the two sides of the coin, you know. Um, I love these little uh, cartoon diagrams here. This is Anxiety. What if nobody likes me? What if I taste weird? What if I'm too cold? What if I'm too hot? What if I'm just right and I can never live up to it again? (laughs) The pearls of overthinking. Help! I've made a mistake. I'm not good enough. I'm doing the right job. I'm doing this. Everyone's staring at me. Why do I bother? We think this all the time because the mind is an unaccountable organ. You can't tell what other people are thinking. So if you can't tell what other people are thinking, what you often do is you mind read. You make up your mind what they're thinking about you. And that's often not based on anything, any truth. It's just based on stuff that you are thinking about through your own insecurities and my insecurities. I read this book called Clinical Depression, which really helped me in a low time. Um, It's called Curse of the Strong. I've never thought of it this way before. Um, But the the, um, psychologist um, that wrote the book said, nine times out of 10, if someone comes to me with depression, I know their personal characteristics. And not every time, but nine times out of 10, they're these. Moral strength, reliability, diligence, strong conscience, strong sense of responsibility, a tendency to focus on the needs of others before one's own, sensitivity, vulnerable to criticism, self-esteem dependent on the evaluation of others. People that suffered from this, Winston Churchill, Vincent van Gogh, Oliver Cromwell, Mother Teresa, not weak people, just people who are amazing and often have just been strong for too long. And I came to that conclusion that people that suffer from anxiety, panic attacks, depression are often just been strong for too long. So I came across this image of Kintsugi and, uh, when I was going for my tough time. And it's become a precious image for me and my wife, Diane. And it's basically, most of you may be aware of it. If you break a bowl, you mend it with super glue and you try and hide the cracks. Um, or to be honest, in this day and age, we probably just disregard it. uh, But what they do in Japan is they put a gold powder in the glue. So instead of hiding the cracks, they make a feature of the cracks. Arguably, the object becomes more beautiful than it was before. It certainly becomes more unique. And I realize that beauty comes from brokenness, that scars are not there to be ashamed of. Um, They're a place of healing. I've had lots of operations on my legs. I have scars everywhere. You can play dot to dot on my legs. And... uh, But they're a place where a healing has taken place, where it's been difficult, but a healing has taken place. Um, So me and my wife, we started this charity called Kintsugi Hope, I'll take later. But this lovely lady, Catherine, um, came around our house around the same time. And she goes, I don't know why, Um, she's not someone of faith, but she goes, I don't know why, I've made you handmade pendants, bespoke, all bespoke, all different colours, takes out ages. And uh, I want you to take these on your stand and sell them and give them away. And, and she says this, the scars of our lives are not to be hidden, for they make us who we are. And you think, wow, how do we deal with these situations? And I love reading the story of Elijah because I look at how God deals with Elijah. You know, 1 Kings 19, verse 5 to 9, there he is. He's in this desperate, broken, low place. And God doesn't come up to him and go, cheer up, mate. You know, come on, things aren't that bad. Remember Carmel, that was brilliant, wasn't it? We did it. You know, Xenopath, you know, the widow laying on the body, that's going to inspire loads of preachers. You're going to love that. Um, You know, what about all this stuff? There was no pep talk. There was no, remember the good old days. It says, angels came and cared for Elijah tenderly. They said, you know what, Elijah, you're tired, you need to sleep. And you need to eat. And then God spoke to Elijah, not in a massive boom, but in a still voice and reminded him he wasn't alone. You know, one of the things I've had to learn a lot of over the years, uh, my counselor said to me, Patrick, um, do you understand what self-compassion is? And to be honest with you, I was like an activist. I was like, that sounds wussy and selfish. Um, um, I want to sacrifice everything for the kingdom. And and she was like, I think you've totally misunderstood what self-compassion is. Because I realized that self-compassion and self-indulgence are two really different things. Self-indulgence is I need that extra glass of wine just to take the edge off on my day. I need that extra piece of cake. I need this situation. I need that. Actually, self-compassion involves discipline. It involves what self-compassion is. This Self-compassion is talking to yourself the way that you would talk to your best friend. And, uh, you know, it's a bit like if Sim came up to me and and he said, you know, Patrick, you know, the guys at Freedom Church, they're good looking, but they're a nightmare. And they've all got this issue and that issue and, you know, and this is happening and that's happening. And I've got this and I'd be like, come on, mate, cheer up a little bit. You know, pull yourself together. It's a good gig. Really good gig. You know, you have lots of food and you shoot people on your church weekends away. It's it's fantastic. And uh, I wouldn't dream of having a go at him. And telling him to pull himself together. Do you know who I do that to every single day? Me. I'm like, Patsy, you idiot. You should know better by now. I should, I must, I ought. How many times we use those three words? I ought to be better. I should be okay. I must pull myself together now. And actually, um, compassion, you know, the word compassion means to suffer with, to be conscious of another's pain, to alleviate someone's uh, distress and pain. So a good friend uh, is actually being able to do that for yourself. That is what self-compassion is. It is not the easy way out. It's about giving ourselves kindness. It's about not listening to that critical voice. How many people suffer from the inner critical voice every day, constantly telling yourself that you should try harder, that you're not good enough? And that leads to all sorts of craziness. The second key thing, Elijah's thoughts must have been going absolutely crazy at this point. And I always say this, get curious about your thoughts. Because the famous um, psychologist Carl Jung said, whatever you resist persists, right? Right? So have you ever noticed that whatever you try not to think about and tell yourself, I'm not going to think about this, you just end up thinking about it? And, uh, and often Christians, we take verses out of context in the Bible all the time. And there's one that talks about taking captive every thought, which is a good one to make people feel guilty about. And it's an almost like, you know, I need to have, I have a negative thought. I just need to bash it in the name of Jesus and then it will be sorted and... Uh, but actually, whatever you resist persists. Like, for instance, just as an experiment, right? Let's—I don't want any of you now to think about chocolate, Mars bars, cabbage cream eggs, Easter. Some of you are trying really hard now. You're going, I'm "Not thinking of chocolate, not thinking of chocolate, not thinking of chocolate." The reality is, it becomes an issue. Then you're so worked up trying not to think about it, you're not relaxed at all. My mate said, "His thoughts are a bit like trains. If you stand on the London Underground, they're going to keep coming." every two minutes they will come and you can stand on the underground and go i rebuke you train you are not coming guess what it's going to come anyway and he says basically what you need to do is you need to learn whether you're going to get on the train or not if you're going to let you, that thought take you to a place that is just so unhealthy and actually part of taking captive thought is actually really thinking about it Have you ever thought about that completely opposite really think about it is it true is that actually really true? would my best mate say that about me And suddenly it starts to lose its power and you let the train go past. He says sometimes it's actually really helpful to label the thought. Here comes I'm going to die early of cancer train. Here comes that nobody likes me train. Um, And suddenly you go. Because courage and vulnerability are the same thing. And sometimes you've got to let things go. So if you don't remember anything I say today, here's a little slogan. Don't believe everything you think. Don't believe it. I don't know any preachers you hear say, question, doubt. You know, really certain people are terrifying. Have you ever noticed that? You know, I've often said the people that flew the planes into the Twin Towers, they were certain they were doing the right thing because of their faith. Terrifying. Throughout history, some of the things we've done as a church, because we were certain when we did the Crusades, it was the right thing to do for our faith. And actually, sometimes faith and doubt have to coexist. Struggling doesn't mean you failed. It means you're a human being struggling doesn't mean you fail it means you're just human who can relate to this image positive 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 negative it's true i'm a failure get curious about your thoughts and then the last one and this is the key one for you guys and i think you guys have got this going on but i think it's something we can always do better on is the key thing for elijah was he thought he was on his own he was lonely the reality is, if you read in, read on, um, he says this, 1 Kings 19 verse 10. I've been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death dead of the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. You know, 1 Kings um, 19 verse 18. Elijah was one of 7,000 prophets left. He wasn't on his own. But you know, sometimes because of the shame attached to some of these things we go through, Brene Brown says, shame, loves silence, secrecy, and judgment. It has two gremlins in your, voice, in your head. Two gremlins in your head often go, who do you think you are? And I'm not enough. They're the two things that often go through our head no one understands loneliness is one of the biggest killers of our time i mean look at these stats loneliness being acutely lonely is as stressful as being punched in the face by a stranger and massively increases your risk of depression the effect of loneliness is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day um, three quarters of gps see between one and five lonely people a day do you know in the government we have a minister for loneliness so i don't know if you know that We have a minister for suicide prevention. These issues have become so huge in our society. So to finish off my story, um, going through this time of brokenness, um, me and my wife, we really started praying. And I really felt God say, um, I was running XLP, it's time to let it go. And I was like, what do you mean let it go? I'm a founder, we don't let go. Um, And in the end, I resigned. And we really started praying about what is next, and, uh, and, you know, they say vision is the art of seeing the invisible that produces passion and energy. You know, Martin Luther King never stood up in front of 250,000 people in Washington and go, I've got a complaint to make. Or I want you to see my business plan. He said, I've got a dream. I've got a dream, rallying people around the dream. And so our dream was, well, we wanted to see a world where emotional and mental health is understood and accepted with safe and supportive communities for people to grow and flourish. Because if you feel safe and you feel supported, you will flourish. There's something beautiful about feeling safe, that feeling. So we looked at different uh, movements. I really felt God say, don't start another charity, which I was like, because I was a little bit burnt out on charity and fundraising and all that stuff. Um, he said, start a movement in the grassroots across the UK and uh, across Europe where people come together and we really get hold of this sort of stuff. So I studied movements for a while. So I looked at Parkrun. Anyone done Parkrun? Put your hands up. Wow, there you go, very impressive group of people. I thought it was really interesting. Here's a bunch of people who come together. Um, they don't have to fit in, but they can belong. Um, different cultures, different ages doing something with a common cause um we looked at rock choir anyone done rock choir and uh, uh, one person fantastic two people amazing again same principle come into communities massive I mean they're hiring Wembley Arena now um, with these choirs from all over the country coming together um, I looked at Weight Watchers anyone don't know let's not do that and um you know I, looked at, I joined Weight Watchers amazing they said oh, I don't want to talk about food We want to talk about wellness and thinking and gratitude and all or nothing thinking and all this sort of stuff completely changed their whole thing around the way they do it. And and I thought, this is fascinating. Something happens when people come together in the grassroots of community. So we thought that vision statement is pretty huge. How on earth are we going to do it? And one of the movements we looked at was AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. And so Diane, my wife, she wrote a 12-week course on emotional and mental well-being and uh, written in learning styles, and to be honest, we were like, we don't just want this to be another thing the church does, you know, church have so many things they do, you've got food bank, and cap and street pastors, and um, there's just loads of stuff, And uh, but somehow we want this to be right at the heart of what the church is, and so we said, instead of setting up a whole brand new thing, let's do it as life group, so we, I thought we got to start my life group, and I'm not the life group leader, so I persuaded my life group leader to give this a go, and... Uh, and they were all a little bit like, oh, well, I'm not sure I want to do that. That sounds quite new. And, uh, and I was like, let's give it a go. Come on, we can do it. And, uh, but I said, here's the thing. Let's not just do it for us because that will be fun. Um, but why don't we invite some of our friends from the community in? And uh, so me and Diane, we sort of took the lead on this. We went up to some of the mums in the school playground, you know, before picking the kids up. And went, we're starting a Kintsugi Hope Wellbeing group. And they'd be like, great, what the heck is that? And we say, well, it's Kintsugi. And they go, oh, and then you describe it. They go, oh, the gold thing, the gold thing. Yeah, I know, the gold thing. And then, fascinating, we just talk about brokenness. I go, yeah, I get it. My husband's just left. I'll come. I'd love to come. Thank you. There's a woman in our kitchen. I'm an alcoholic. I've told no one. Can I come? Yes, you can. Um, We had people come who have been living next door to us. And PTSD, husband's been violent. Um, We've had a lady uh, down the road, self-harming. And we all came. And on the first week, our life group had trebled in size. There were 17 of us in our lounge. And I'm sitting there feeling anxious as usual. And uh, my wife says, it's on honesty the first week. Turn to the person next to you and tell them about a high point and a low point. So I turn to the guy next to me. I think, oh, great. I've known this guy, you know, my whole life. He sort of knew my parents, really. And uh, so this will be easy. And uh, we started talking I learned more in five minutes than I'd learned in 45 years of doing this in church next to this guy. And I turned to him and I went, mate, I'm so sorry. You went through hell and back. And I knew nothing about it. We created a culture somehow. We didn't talk about it. And me and him are tight now. Our relationship's so different. It's so funny. He's, a head, he's an ex-head teacher. We're so different. But I appreciate him so much. And so on the back of some of the speaking stuff I did, I said to churches in the UK, just to people, most of them I didn't even know, who wants to do a pilot, you know, it's always a good thing to do. So we did 11 pilots across the UK. And one guy was like, do you mind if I just do it in a homeless hostel with five non-Christians? I was like, no, that's great. They had an absolute fantastic week time on week, week fours on shame. He said, from that week on, the whole thing changed. Um, We had people doing it up north, people down south. And I guess that we were just praying like mad is that we let go of this notion, this harmful notion that there are those in need and there are those who are able to help. And we start to realize that we're all in need and we can all help. Um, We start going, you're broken, I'm broken. Let's share in our common brokenness and let's go on this journey together so there's no them and us. And I'm praying like mad that God would move through this movement in a way which um, is really beautiful and special. Because, like, you know, so often I say to God, you know, if the next revival comes in a warehouse in America somewhere and God TV come along and they beam it across Europe and we call it revival, I think I'm done. Um, but you know what? If people can come together in prisons and in communities and in schools and in coffee shops and in pubs and in brothels um, where the marginalized feel loved and accepted... I'm totally up for it. And uh, so we took the huge leap. And then from two months ago, we said to churches, if you want to do this, we'll support you. We'll train you. Um, Diane does Facebook Live every week for people that lead in the course. Um, there was one church I was saying to Sim in Exeter, um, I did a preach like this and then I had like 25 people wanting to run groups and the leader went to me, yeah, thanks so much, that's really helpful. <laughs> I was like, just see you later. And, uh, but the passion is there because if we do something, we can make a difference. I always quote the famous theologian Winnie the Pooh. Um, he says this, don't walk behind me, I may not lead. Don't walk in front of me, I may not follow. Just walk beside me and be my friend. Um, I uh, seem to my biggest fans in life seem to be old ladies. I don't know why. I just they just love me, and uh, um, and I have all these old ladies that write to me. And there's this beautiful old lady called Jane, and uh, and she um, she's never heard me speak. She's always wanted to. And uh, last year um, she got out. She's got a very rare form of blood cancer, and uh, she writes poems and she writes them on a typewriter and she sends them to me. And uh, she's so cute and such a lovely, precious, dear woman of God. And, uh, and she said to me, and I'll finish by reading this. Um, I've written you a poem about your Kintsugi thing. And, uh, and as part of the groups, we produce this journal called This Is Me. And uh, where people, there's poems and Bible verses and inspirational quotes um, in it. And uh, this is Jane's poem. She says this. Acceptance in the anguish, beauty in the bruises, Belief in the brokenness, breakthrough in the battle, comfort in the conflict, contentment in the confusion, courage in the crisis, determination in the distress, diamonds in the dust, dignity in the disappointment, direction in the difficulty, discovery in the darkness, faith in the fear, fortitude in the frustration, grace in the grief, healing in the horror, hope in the hurt, insight in the injury, and inspiration in the illness and uh, and she said to me just use it wherever you go my PA who's French uh, forgiven her for that and um, she's lovely Uh, she's absolute inspiration and uh, she sent me this word on whatsapp so our Kintsugi group we have a whatsapp and uh, we send each other little images all the time little inspirational images and so she sent this one and uh, it's a word flawsome And uh, I thought she she hasn't got caught onto the language. She's made something up. And uh, so I looked into the dictionary. And the word flawsome is in the dictionary. And it means this. An individual who embraces their flaws and knows they're awesome regardless. That is really cool. That is so cool. And uh, so at the end of our events, um, when we go on tour, me and Mike, um, we we give everyone a card and we ask them to put their thumbprint on it because everyone's got a different thumbprint, fingerprint, Identical twins, you'll never get the same thumbprint. You're so unique. And, and then we have this big cross. And uh, and what they do is they come and they pull it on the cross. And by putting it on the cross, they're basically saying, you know what, I believe that I was worth dying for. It's a real moment. And the non-Christians, they've got no problem doing it. Some of the Christians are like, well, I'm not sure I could touch the cross. You know, And non-Christians are straight up there. Sometimes they start kneeling down. And sometimes people will just go into a time of worship. Um, but this time, at this event... Um, this kid who had Down syndrome and came up to me and uh, he gave me his card. And he said, you know what, um, I don't often listen to right through a talk. I can't normally concentrate the whole time. Um, I listened and I went away feeling really special, thank you. But I want you to have my card and, and remind people that wherever they are, wherever their uh, capability, their mental capacity, their emotional capacity, their physical capacity, they're flawsome. They're made in the image of God.